From New York, this is Democracy Now! The cruelty that's been happening at the Texas border uh, just doesn't seem to stop. Uh, Greg Abbott's implementation of the buoy system and the concertina wire on the border is, uh, is sadly uh, not an immigration policy and certainly not a strategy that's leading to the deaths of women and children along the border. The U.S. Department of Justice is threatening to sue Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott if he doesn't take steps by today to remove large barrels and coils of razor wire placed in the Rio Grande River to block migrants from crossing the border. We'll speak to Texas State Senator Roland Gutierrez, and we'll go to Arizona, where the intercepts revealed U.S. Border Patrol agents are holding migrants in outdoor cages amidst a record-setting heat wave. Inside the walls of the station, I saw roughly 50 migrants being held in a chain-link enclosure with very little shade. The temperature that day was 114 degrees. Uh, We're currently experiencing a record-breaking and deadly heat wave. And already this month, uh, the remains of 14 migrants have been found in the desert in this area. Then an historic settlement. New York City's agreed to pay $13 million to protesters victimized by the police during the 2020 Black Lives Matter protests. And we'll look at the new blockbuster film about J. Robert Oppenheimer, the father of the atomic bomb. Christopher Nolan's new Oppenheimer movie has drawn raves and large crowds this weekend. However, uh, I found uh, not so much what's wrong in it, but the many omissions that are troubling as we look at what happened in 1945 and the lessons for today uh, as nuclear dangers increase in 2023. We'll speak to journalist Greg Mitchell. He asks, is Hollywood still afraid of the truth about the atomic bomb? All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Climate scientists have confirmed the first half of July marked the hottest two weeks in recorded human history, and there are no signs the summer of climate extremes is set to end anytime soon. In Greece, evacuations are underway from the fire-scorched island of Corfu. This follows the largest mass evacuation in Greek history as some 30,000 people fled what survivors described as hellish wildfires and roads. In recent days, European holidaygoers who spent nights on the floors of airports and emergency shelters describe harrowing scenes. Smoke had been travelling over our pool for quite some time at the Princess Sun Hotel, um, and it was just getting worse and worse. And we started to hear the helicopters, and then basically you could see the fire eventually on the uh, on the mountain top. At least 82 wildfires are blazing across Greece during the summer's unprecedented heat wave, displacing thousands of people and burning down homes. In Italy, record-breaking heat was followed Friday by a fierce hailstorm in the north, where ice the size of tennis balls fell on the streets of Sereno, just north of Milan, inundating the streets in icy floodwaters. 
In India, authorities have ended a rescue mission after a monsoon-triggered landslide in the western state of Maharashtra killed at least 27 people and flattened homes. At least 57 people are still missing and presumed dead. In Pakistan and Afghanistan, flash floods and landslides killed at least 44 people in recent days. Meanwhile, the World Health Organization's warning global heating has pushed cases of dengue fever to near-record highs. In Bangladesh, authorities say the mosquitoes Mosquito-borne viral infection has already reached epidemic proportions, killing 176 people this year, many of them children. In Canada, authorities in Nova Scotia say the region was deluged in less than 24 hours with the amount of rain it typically gets in three months. Here in the United States, the Newell Road wildfire in Washington's Klickitat County grew to nearly 52,000 acres Sunday, prompting evacuations. Authorities say the fire threatens farms, crops and livestock, as well as solar and wind farms and a natural gas pipeline. If it continues to grow, it could also threaten the Yakima Indian Reservation. Spain appears headed for contentious political negotiations after snap elections failed to produce an outright victory for either the left or right. The conservative Partido Popular won the most parliamentary seats, though it received fewer votes than expected. Even if formed an alliance with the far-right Vox Party, the right-wing bloc would still fall short of a majority. Meanwhile, Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sánchez's Socialist Party, which came in second, and the progressive Sumard Party spun Sunday's victory outcome. This is a Prime Minister Sanchez speaking from Madrid. Those who proposed machismo, a regression on rights and freedoms have failed today, and the backward-looking bloc of the People's Party with Vox has been defeated. There are many more of us who want Spain to continue moving forward than pursuing the path of regression. Pro-independence Catalan and Basque parties could now become kingmakers in the formation of Spain's next government. In Cambodia, long-ruling Prime Minister Hun Sen declared a landslide victory in national elections Sunday in a race where the ruling party ran virtually unopposed after suppressing the only viable challengers. Hun Sen, a former Khmer Rouge commander and the longest-serving head of state in Asia with 38 years in power, is widely expected to transfer the premiership to his eldest son, Han Manet. In Israel, President Isaac Herzog declared the country, uh, quote, in the midst of a national emergency, as lawmakers hold a final vote today on a highly contested bill that would abolish the power of the Supreme Court to block government decisions it deems unreasonable, the first of several radical judicial reforms set to be voted into law in the coming days. Opposition parties are boycotting today's vote, which comes after hundreds of thousands of protesters marched in cities across Israel for a 29th consecutive weekend. Hundreds are demonstrating outside the Knesset in Jerusalem, where police fired water cannons to disperse protesters who block roads. Others chain themselves to trees. We were left with no choice but to go to um, disobedience, um, nonviolent disobedience. And we're here to protect our democracy with our bodies. Um, we can only hope that they will listen to our cries. We want equality for all, and this is all we can do. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was discharged from the hospital earlier today after receiving emergency surgery to implant a pacemaker Saturday. He arrived at the Knesset in time for today's vote. 
Palestinian authorities are demanding a probe into the killing of a Palestinian teenager by Israeli forces in the occupied West Bank town of Sebastia early Saturday morning. Witnesses say Israeli soldiers fired more than 40 rounds into a car transporting 18-year-old Fauzi Hani Mahalfe. Separately, Israeli soldiers fatally shot 17-year-old Mohammed Fuad Atta al-Bayed in the head during protests in the village of Umsafa. Here in New York, a man being detained at Rikers Island was found dead in his cell Sunday morning. 44-year-old Curtis Davis is the seventh prisoner death at Rikers this year. Last week, Manhattan's top federal prosecutor called for a government takeover of the Rikers prison complex. New York City Mayor Eric Adams opposes the idea. There have been 26 prisoner deaths at Rikers since Adams took office in January of last year. A warning to our audience, our next stories contain descriptions and footage of police violence. In Ohio, newly released body camera video shows a state highway patrol officer unleashing a police dog on an unarmed black truck driver after a traffic stop south of Columbus on July 4th. The footage shows 23-year-old Jadarius Rose had his hands in the air when a handler directed the dog to attack him. Rose was bitten, dragged by the arm, hospitalized, later released to be booked at the Ross County Jail on felony charges of failure to comply. So far, there's no sign the officer responsible for the attack has faced any disciplinary action. In California, surveillance video shows a Los Angeles County Sheriff's deputy brutally beating a 23-year-old transgender man outside a convenience store in February. Emmett Brock was driving home from his job as a teacher when he was followed by Deputy Joseph Benza to a 7-Eleven parking lot, where the officer tackled Brock to the pavement and punched him repeatedly in the head, accusing him of resisting arrest, even as Brock cried out for help, struggled to breathe, made no move against the officer. A police report said Brock was pulled over because he had an air freshener hanging from his rearview mirror. Brock says he was assaulted because he held up his middle finger when driving past Benz's patrol car. Donald Trump's trial over his handling of classified documents has been set for May 2024, six months before the presidential election. Trump's legal team is expected to file multiple motions, which could push back the trial start date. Federal Judge Aileen Cannon, a Trump appointee, set the trial at Florida's Fort Pierce courthouse. The jury pool will be drawn from counties that previously elected Trump. And President Biden announced Friday he secured commitments from seven major tech companies to ensure artificial intelligence adheres to a set of safety and transparency standards. Companies have a duty to earn the people's trust and empower users to make informed decisions labeling content that has been altered or AI generated, rooting out bias and discrimination, strengthening privacy protections and shielding children from harm. Other pledges include testing products for safety before releasing them, combating cyber threats and managing risks to national security. The seven companies are Amazon, Anthropic, Google, Inflection, Meta, Microsoft and OpenAI. Experts welcome the voluntary commitment as a positive first step, but called on lawmakers and government agencies to reinforce the measures with enforceable regulations. This comes as workers in a growing range of industries are calling for better protections against AI. More than 8,000 authors, including Margaret Atwood, Jonathan Franzen and Viet Thanh Nguyen, signed onto a letter organized by the Authors Guild calling on AI to stop exploiting copyrighted works. The 
letter reads in part, these technologies mimic and regurgitate our language, stories, style and ideas. Millions of copyrighted books, articles, essays and poetry provide the food for AI systems, endless meals for which there has been no bill, they wrote. Meanwhile, Google has demonstrated their AI-powered news writing tool known as Genesis to executives at The New York Times, The Washington Post and News Corp, owner of The Wall Street Journal. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The U.S. Department of Justice is threatening to sue Texas after Republican Governor Greg Abbott installed barrels wrapped in razor wire in the Rio Grande in an attempt to block migrants from crossing the river and entering the United States. Texas has also placed large coils of razor wire in the river. The Justice Department has given Abbott until 2 p.m. today to begin removing the floating barriers and related structures. Humanitarian workers and local news outlets report numerous migrants, including children, have suffered from lacerations after being cut by the razor wire. Oftentimes, they couldn't see it was underwater. A whistleblower state trooper at the Texas Department of Public Safety recently decried the state's inhumane policies in a letter to superiors. Nicholas Wingate wrote, quote, the wire and barrels and the river needs to be taken out as this is nothing but an inhumane trap and high water and low visibility, he wrote. Last week, the U.S. Justice Department sent a letter to Texas stating, quote, the state of Texas's actions violate federal law, raise humanitarian concerns, present serious risks to public safety and the environment, and may interfere with the federal government's ability to carry out its official duties, unquote. Texas Governor Greg Abbott responded by writing on social media, Texas has the sovereign authority to defend our border under the U.S. Constitution and the Texas Constitution. Abbott went on to say, we will see you in court, Mr. President. We're joined right now by Democratic Texas State Senator Roland Gutierrez. He recently announced he'll run against Republican Senator Ted Cruz of Texas. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, State Senator, at least for now. Um, it's really important to have you with us on this critical day. Can you talk about these flesh-ripping razor-wire barriers in the water um, and what you think needs to be done at this point? Well, thank you, Amy. Uh, first off, I mean, I, it's obvious that what's happening on the border is inhumane, as Trooper Wingate uh, suggested. These people are made in the eyes of God, and uh, the, no one should have to go through this kind of torture. And it is torture. Let's be very clear. Um, the wire that is in the water cannot be seen. It's lacerated people. It's caused problems. And worse yet, Trooper Wingate describes a situation where people have tried to get beyond the buoys and beyond the razor wire, sadly, in deeper parts of the river. Uh, he talks about a mom who lost her child uh, underwater. Uh, her and her other child uh, succumbed at that point. To tr they, they rescued the mom and the daughter but they sadly uh, died at the hospital. And so we have to understand that what's happening at the border in Texas right now is criminal. There are state crimes, there are federal crimes, and there's international crimes. We have to understand that what's happening right now 
is of such a degree that troopers are acting under the color of law and that they're not only are taking people's rights, but people are dying or being injured very seriously from this. Greg Abbott needs to stop this flippant attitude and understand that what he is doing is harming people and nothing he is doing has anything to do with any kind of immigration policy because they have shown no metrics under Operation Lone Star. It has been stunt after stunt after stunt, and unfortunately, this one is leading into the deaths of migrants and migrant children. Um, <clears throat> there were a number of other incidents that were described in the email. Um, the four-year-old migrant girl and a pregnant woman having a miscarriage found with severe injuries as they crashed into the barbed wire barrels while crossing the river. The young girl had also passed out from heat exhaustion. Uh, Wingate also wrote that the migrant mother, as you described, and one of her children drowned. It looks like the other one is uh, not found, a child being pushed back into the water by one of these Border Patrol? Yes, Amy. I mean, all of those actions that you just described are absolute crimes uh, that need to be prosecuted. I have talked to the local district attorney. As you know, I've asked the Justice Department to step in. They have suggested that, that they're indeed doing that. They've asked the governor to remove uh, the obstacles in the water. The Department of Public Safety's director, Steve McCraw, I spoke to him immediately as these reports came out, which was last Monday, and he suggested there's going to be an audit. I don't think he understands the severity of the situation. This is not about an audit. We need to have an investigation as to who gave what commands and when, how high from the Department of Public Safety did those commands come from, uh, who knew about it. Uh, he claims, of course, that uh, he didn't know anything about it. But, you know, any kind of audit or investigation of any sort from this agency is, I, I just question, because this is the same agency that failed all of those kids in Uvalde, Texas, a year ago, over a year ago. And here yet, we have no accountability from this agency at all in the last year and a half on that incident. Uh, I think that we have to take a very serious look at what's considered immigration policy and what isn't. The last two months, we have seen a success in the re-implementation of Title VIII, cutting down crossings about uh, down to half. Uh, the fact is, Greg Abbott doesn't want to have that discussion. He simply wants to talk about the chaos that he's created. And you've announced you're running against U.S. Senator Ted Cruz. What role does Cruz play in all of this, representing the state of Texas? Uh, Amy, the best I could say is cheerleader, I guess, uh, cheerleader to Greg Abbott. Um, he likes to come down to the border, doesn't talk about any of the benefits that are happening in the communities along the border, doesn't talk about trade. He likes to talk uh, about, you know, this invading horde. Uh, he scares people with this notion that, you know, people are just carrying fentanyl across our borders, which is just simply not true. Fentanyl product is coming in from all sorts of ports of entry across these across this country. Um, no doubt fentanyl is a problem and no doubt immigration to a certain degree is a problem. But they those immigrants are not responsible for the major problems that are happening in Texas in education and health care, infrastructure uh, and beyond. And, and, and really, quite simply, lack of opportunity. Uh, Ted Cruz has done nothing, nothing to solve this problem, nothing to offer an idea how to solve this immigration problem that we're having. Uh, luckily, uh, under President Biden's administration, the last two months, as I said, after the reimplementation of Title VIII, we've seen border crossings cut in half.
You are going to um, run for the U.S. Senate against Ted Cruz, Democratic Texas State Senator Roland Gutierrez. So I wanted to stay on the immigration, because if you were in the U.S. Senate, you might be voting on issues, of course, far um, beyond the borders of Texas. And I wanted to look at Arizona now with a related story. The Intercept has revealed U.S. Border Patrol agents are holding migrants in outdoor cages amidst a record setting heat wave. On Thursday, Intercept reporter Ryan Devereaux and photographer Ash Ponders observed about 50 migrants inside a chain-link pen at the Ajo Border Patrol Station, which is about two hours west of Tucson. The migrants could be seen huddling in a small area where there was a bit of shade on a day when temperatures reached 114 degrees in the area. Meanwhile, the group Humane Border says the bodies of at least 13 people have been found over the past month in the Sonoran Desert, which many migrants cross. In addition to State Senator Roland Gutierrez, we're joined in Tucson, Arizona, by Ryan Devereaux, investigative journalist for The Intercept. His new piece headlined, Border Patrol is Caging Migrants Outdoors During Deadly Arizona Heat Wave. Ryan, welcome back to Democracy Now! Please describe what you've seen. Thanks for having me, Amy. Last week, I got a tip that the Border Patrol was holding migrants outdoors in a in a some sort of enclosure at the Ajo Border Patrol Station. And this was surprising for two reasons. Uh, anybody who knows anything about the desert in southern Arizona knows that this portion of the desert uh, is as deadly as it gets. And as you mentioned at the top of the show, we are right now experiencing a record-setting and deadly heat wave. So I drove out to the Ajo Station with photojournalist Ash Ponders. Uh, as you said, it was 114 degrees that day. We hiked up to a ridge where we were able to see into the Border Patrol station. We had a telephoto lens and binoculars, and we were able to observe roughly 50 migrants being held in a chain link enclosure uh, under a sort of carport style structure that cast a small strip of shade on the ground. The ground was loose rock. Uh, the shade was minimal. People were crowding themselves into the shade that was available shoulder to shoulder. I observed roughly 30 migrants being marched off to a separate set of uh, section of the facility and, and roughly as many staying behind. The ground was littered with uh, water bottles. There was one large fan and a misting machine set up, and the only uh, furniture in the pen was a set of bleachers, metal bleachers, that were in direct sunlight and appeared to be scorching hot. The fan and the misting machine were uh, pointed in an area with direct sunlight, so they weren't being used. Uh, people were largely quiet and still. Uh, there were folks there who were there when we arrived and still there when we left. We observed the scene for, for roughly an hour there. And as I've gathered more information um, you know, before and after the reporting, Border Patrol Station there in Ajo has been seeing a lot of migrants uh, coming in. Folks are presenting themselves for asylum um, down near the border wall south of Ajo, roughly two to 300 people a day. But last week, uh, in a 24-hour period, there were 800 to 1,000 people who showed up. Uh, humane Borders and other humanitarian groups are trying to provide aid down there at the border wall, but are uh, overwhelmed at the moment. Were they men, women, children? From what I could tell, it, it appeared to be mostly adult men, but age and gender were sort of impossible to be absolutely certain about from a distance. 
but the 30 or so migrants who I saw marched off appeared to all be men. However, at the border itself, um, there are absolutely families showing up, children showing up. And as you mentioned at the top of the show, in the past month, the remains of 14 migrants have been found in the desert. And that's, you know, on top of the 4,000 plus that have been uh, recovered over the past two and a half decades. And all border researchers agree that that is certainly in undercount. I and mean, you really can't overstate how deadly this ecosystem is. And when you combine that with the heat wave that we're experiencing now, it's absolutely a recipe for disaster. Uh, you write, Ryan, on Wednesday, officials in Maricopa County, north of Ajo, reported at least 18 people have died from heat in Phoenix this year, with 69 other cases under investigation. We're not talking about uncomfortable heat. We're talking about deadly heat. That's that's absolutely correct. And and the area that we're talking about where these migrants are being held is as rugged as it gets. It's as remote as it gets. And even under normal conditions in the summer, this is a part of the desert that you absolutely do not trifle with. And under these conditions, with this heat wave, it is otherworldly. It's extraordinarily hot and extraordinarily deadly. And that desert will take your life in, in no time. A spokesperson for Customs and Border Protection sent a statement to The Intercept that said the agency, quote, is prioritizing expeditiously transporting non-citizens encountered in this desert environment, which is particularly dangerous during current weather conditions, to U.S. Border Patrol facilities where individuals can receive medical care, food, water. Ryan Devereaux, your response. Yeah, it's it's the sort of statement and response that we would expect from CBP. It's 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 fairly boilerplate. I think the the biggest unanswered question here right now is how is it that a multi-billion-dollar agency CBP receives more funding traditionally than ATF, FBI, DEA combined? How is it that this agency does not have the resources to handle uh, the arrival of migrants that is? totally predictable. I mean, this happens multiple times a year. It's been happening for years. And yet uh, what we're seeing is a reaction that that is what you would expect from somebody who's seen this for the first time. So this is a very well-funded agency, and yet they're telling us that they don't have enough resources to avoid putting people outside um, in a historic and deadly heat wave. So in Texas, you have the Republican Governor Abbott. In Arizona, you have the Democratic Governor Katie Hobbs. Um, When it comes to the border and treatment of immigrants, does it matter whether it's a Democratic or Republican governor? I mean, I think if you look at the events on the ground and how things shake out, we've seen over, you know, administration after administration, Democrats and Republicans, the core elements remain the same. The U.S., strategy on the border is funneling flows of migrants into the most remote and deadly stretches of the desert. Um, and this particular area that we're discussing today in, in the sort of west desert of southern Arizona has turned into an absolute graveyard as a result of that bipartisan policy. Finally, I wanted to ask Texas State Senator Roland Gutierrez, we first talked to you after the Uvalde massacre of children at the elementary school. Um, There, hundreds of Texas law enforcement moved in and did nothing. Here you have Texas law enforcement pushing children back into the water. Can you comment overall on what needs to happen? And if you became U.S. senator, what is the kind of immigration reform we need to see? Well, Amy, we need to revamp the whole the whole system. 
and I don't know that people in Congress are ready to do this, but we are facing an aging population in the United States. We have we can absorb literally millions of jobs in hospitality, construction, agriculture. Right now, our farmers and ranchers are struggling with our H-2A visa program. We need to revamp this whole program, take immigration outside of the border, remove it to countries of origin, go to the U.S. consulate and, say, and, and where, where you where you imagine an office that says we need uh, 10,000 jobs in hospitality. And we start filling those jobs from abroad. We can do this in a right way. We just need to have people currently in Congress that are willing to do it. Additionally, there's 13 million migrants in the United States that have been here for more than 30 years. We need to address that issue. We need to give them a pathway to residency, first off, and citizen, citizenship beyond that. We have a million dreamers that we haven't settled. All of the issues on immigration are right there in front of us, and they're solvable. It just doesn't seem that people on, on either side of this aisle want to, solve, want to fix this political football. Republicans less so. I think that they see him as some future voter that wouldn't vote for them. But, you know, we've seen the fixes come from a Republican named Ronald Reagan many, many years ago with amnesty. Uh, we have to get down together and figure this out. Every association of business, chamber of commerce, and agricultural group across this country wants to solve this problem. It can be solved if we do it in a smart way. Democratic Texas State Senator Roland Gutierrez now running for the U.S. Senate against Republican Senator Ted Cruz. And Ryan Devereaux, reporter for The Intercept, based in Tucson, Arizona. Ryan, will link to your new piece, Border Patrol is Caging Migrants Outdoors During Deadly Arizona Heat Wave. Coming up, an historic settlement. New York City's agreed to pay $13 million to protesters victimized by the police during the 2020 Black Lives Matter protests. Then we'll look at the film Oppenheimer. Stay with us. Walk along the street of sorrow, the boulevard of broken dreams, where Gigolo and Gigolette can take a kiss without regret, so they forget their broken dreams. You laugh tonight and cry tomorrow. Behold your shattered schemes Jiggle and jiggle at Wake up to find their eyes are wet With tears that tell of broken dreams Here is where you'll always find me Always walking up and down But I left my soul behind me in an old cathedral town. Tony Bennett singing the Boulevard of Broken Dreams. He died on Friday at the age of 96. He was a funder of the civil rights movement and marched with Dr. Martin Luther King. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We turn now to an historic settlement for more than 1,300 people who were attacked by New York City police while protesting the police murder of George Floyd in 2020. The landmark $13 million settlement announced last week with the city of New York is years in the making and is the largest total payout to protest in a class action suit 
in U.S. history, with each person receiving just under $10,000. The case focused on how police violated protesters' civil and constitutional rights by making mass arrests using excessive force that included improper use of pepper spray, using a tactic called kettling to trap and arrest protesters before a curfew went into effect. This is footage about improper arrests used in the case from an officer's body camera. camera off, the police are saying. This settlement's the latest in a series of legal victories for protesters that use a video analysis tool developed by Situ Research that quickly analyzes massive amounts of police body camera videos, aerial footage, and social media videos. The city of New York settled another lawsuit in March with more than 300 protesters in the Mott Haven neighborhood of the Bronx over the NYPD's use of Ketling in 2020 protests. Each person received about $21,000, the highest per person settlement for a mass arrest in U.S. history. While this latest settlement did not impose any reforms on the NYPD, the director at Situ Research told The Intercept, quote, our larger goal remains enduring change in policing. For more, we're joined by two guests. Gideon Oliver is a civil rights attorney co-counsel for the plaintiffs in the case. And Dara Pluccino is a named plaintiff in the case who was also a class member for the Mott Haven settlement. She's a social worker. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Uh, Gideon Oliver, let's just talk about the scope of this settlement and the significance of uh, the New York City, I mean, the taxpayers, having to pay out $13 million because of police misconduct and brutality. Thank you so much, Amy. It's a, a great pleasure to be back on the show, and it was a great pleasure to litigate this case with National Lawyers Guild uh, lawyers from Cohen and Green, Beldock, Levine and Hoffman, and Wiley Stecklow. Um, you know, there's although there's no technical admission of liability from uh, the city or the police department in connection with the settlement, the um, size of the settlement uh, really speaks for itself. Um, and although it's historic, as you just mentioned, there was recently another historic settlement. And, you know, a number of times before, uh, the city of New York has um, paid out uh, historic settlements or judgments in uh, protester cases. And so it really begs the question, uh, uh, you know, what's going to change? What's going to be different uh, uh, this time? So, Dara Pluccino, tell us what happened to you in these Black Lives Matter protests in 2020. This, remember, folks, um, was in the midst of the pandemic. Uh, just the bravery alone of people coming out in force, thousands of people in city after city protesting the police murder of uh, George Floyd. Yes, thank you, Amy, so much for having us today and covering this. I can speak about my experience and also recognize that my experience, largely due to the identities I hold and how that protects me from policing's violence, um, is not representative of what I witnessed happen to many others in protest that summer and since and before. Um, and so it's really essential that this not be considered as an isolated summer or an isolated incident. Um, and my experience was one of unlawful policing, was one of kettling in Mott Haven and then mass arrest, um, being held for much longer than allowed, 
being handed off from the arresting officer to the one who wrote the citation. I have lasting nerve damage in my left hand from the use of the zip tie handcuffs. Um, and my experience is also much uh, safer. I was much less harmed and my body was treated with much more care during arrest than folks around me who presented as black and brown and who I witnessed being hit with batons while arrested and handcuffed face down on the ground, who I witnessed get pepper sprayed in a targeted way, um, who I witnessed be punched and etc. I want to turn to video accompanying the 2020 protests that was produced by Human Rights Watch and Situ Research about the NYPD's plan to kettle and arrest protesters June 4th, uh, 2020, again, right after Floyd's murder. In this clip, you hear an exchange between a New York police officer and two protesters. The protesters had already been forced to break the curfew, and the police keep ratcheting up the pressure. Dara, they're saying, you guys are there. We can't go anywhere. You've corralled us in. If you can also explain, for people who aren't familiar with what kettling is, describe it in detail. Yes, kettling is the practice of enclosing a group of people, in this case protesters, in a small area so that there is not the ability to leave that area once mass arrest is going to occur. And in the case of these protests, the kettling occurred, as the person in the video shared, prior to when the curfew was in place. And so it was a small, narrow street. Um, and what occurred was that the group of protesters marching um, came upon a line of police officers using bikes and batons and their bodies as a barrier in the front of the crowd. And then when the end of the group of protesters was on that same street, another line of police came behind to do the same and serve as a barrier with their bikes and batons and bodies. And at that point, the group of protesters was stuck and unable to leave that block radius because we were surrounded by homes and buildings on either side and then police lines in the front and the back. Um, and once the curfew hit, then that is when uh, chaos occurred uh, Gideon, and violence occurred. Gideon Oliver, just last week, Gothamist reported that NYPD officers accused of wrongdoing can now watch all relevant video of an incident before speaking to investigators. Video evidence played a, a huge role in this settlement. Um, if you can first talk about this in situ, the video compiling massive amounts of video from police body cam and from social media, how this helped with this settlement, and then talk about what that means uh, for police being able to view this before um, for the future. Sure. So, I mean, in, in this case, we both received and gathered um, uh, an unprecedented amount of video from many sources, but uh, including uh, a huge number of NYPD body-worn camera, pieces of NYPD body-worn camera footage, 
uh, NYPD aerial surveillance footage, etc. And um, working with Situ Research, uh, uh, the partner who also worked um, with Human Rights Watch on the uh, video clip uh, that you just played, um, uh, Situ Research was able to organize that data in a way that um, uh, they and we, uh, the plaintiffs' attorneys, could um, essentially uh, uh, look at what happened in a given uh, date and location um, uh, 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 integrating um, those various different video sources, which was just a, an incredible resource uh, to be able to have. Um, and in terms of the uh, uh, CCRB's uh, uh, new policy uh, or change policy, you know, um, before the, the new policy, a uh, uh, NYPD member could view body, their body-worn camera footage or other body-worn camera footage um, because they can access that footage uh, through a central uh, repository, but they they wouldn't. But if they did so, there would be a record, right? There would be a a, a, a record in an audit trail or metadata, and um, so that's a data point that an investigator or somebody thinking about uh, the officer's credibility um, could use in evaluating their statement to the CCRB. Uh, but uh, uh, police didn't have access to uh, other footage, non-body worn camera footage, Teru. Uh, footage taken by other police, aerial footage taken by other police, etc. Um, now the CCRB has uh, changed its policy and is going to allow NYPD members to view basically all of the footage before giving statements. And that's not something, by the way, that's going to happen for uh, uh, victims and witnesses. Um, so it, it, this this is a change that's going to really undermine the truth-seeking uh, uh, process that the CCRB is supposed to be involved in. Um, it's outrageous. It's going to lead to um, uh, 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 much less justice and accountability. Um, uh, and um, so, and it's also interesting because the CCRB uh, investigated many incidents of uses of force arising from the summer 2020 protests. And one of its uh, chief complaints uh, to the police department was that the police department wasn't making video footage and other evidence available to it, and that in many cases, uh, NYPD members who, according to policy, should have had their body-worn cameras uh, activated and in interacting with protesters were ordered by supervisors to turn the cameras off. I want to put this last question to each of you, and the issue of this being a money settlement— um about 1,300 people getting uh, just under 10,000 each, as opposed to also being um, a policy-changing settlement. Let me first ask Gideon, then Dara, as we wrap up. Um, you know, what this massive settlement means for New Yorkers is, is an open question, right? And it's uh, it, we can't rely on the city government to um, trans to do what they're supposed to do, which is translate a huge settlement like this into some kind of increased accountability, oversight, and policy change. Um, so, you know, the settlement is historic and incredibly important, um, but it, it, it's also in some ways only as important as what we make it mean. Um, so that's that's how I am. And Dara Pluccino, you were part of yeah. both settlements, both in Mott Haven and this historic $13 million settlement. Yes, I think I would echo a lot of what Gideon shared, and I would add here that it's also an opportunity for folks like myself, um, where this is representative of a more isolated incident with police because of the racist practices of policing, 
to redistribute and reinvest in local community organizations and individuals and the people who are in community doing the daily work of keeping them safe outside of policing, which we know does not serve the role that it is espoused to. Well, I want to thank you. And for others, I hope what this money will do is provide an opportunity to access rest and care Mm -hmm. and therapy or, you know, whatever form that takes, be it a vacation, be it a nice meal out with friends, be it formal talk therapy, um, but whatever kind of care and healing is required from this, these incidents and also the daily experience of living and existing in an over-policed community and city and state and country. Dara Pluchino, social worker, plaintiff in this case, and Gideon Oliver, civil rights attorney, co-counsel for the plaintiffs uh, in this historic settlement. Coming up, we look at the new blockbuster film about J. Robert Oppenheimer. We'll speak to journalist Greg Mitchell. He asks, is Hollywood still afraid of the truth about the atomic bomb? Back in 30 seconds. Destroyer of Worlds by Ludwig Garnson from the soundtrack of the movie Oppenheimer. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We end today's show at the movies. Amidst the ongoing SAG after strike, Universal Pictures canceled the red carpet for the U.S. premiere of Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. Meanwhile, people filled theaters this weekend to see the film about J. Robert Oppenheimer, all known as the father of the atomic bomb. This is the trailer. Imagine a future, and our imaginings horrify us. They won't fear it until they understand it.
The physicist J. Robert Oppenheimer developed and tested the world's first atomic bomb in New Mexico. In that state, the film is being preceded by a 15-second advertisement produced by the Union of Concerned Scientists that notes, quote, Oppenheimer's bomb led to decades of nuclear testing across the Southwest. Communities still suffer health impacts related to the tests, many without government recognition or justice. For more, we're joined by Greg Mitchell, documentary filmmaker, author of numerous books about this very topic, including The Beginning or the End, How Hollywood and America Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. He was editor of Nuclear Times magazine in the 1980s. He's written about this new film for Mother Jones on his substack and an opinion piece for the L.A. Times headlined Oppenheimer is Here. Is Hollywood Still Afraid of the Truth About the Atomic Bomb? Greg, welcome back to Democracy Now! Some are calling this the, gr the greatest anti-nuclear film ever. Um, you have a different and a critical perspective on the film. Uh, why don't you just talk about your response to the film, what it got right, what it got wrong? Uh, right. Yes, uh, I saw an, an early screening of the film uh, before a lot of the critical uh, opinions came in. So I saw it uh, with a very open mind. And I think people should see the film. Uh, I think it's uh, it's it's very well written, well acted, well directed, and I think it probably has good intentions. So uh, I would certainly encourage people to see it. However, uh, I did find uh, a number of uh, issues with it, which I've written about uh, really every day on my my blog uh, and newsletter. Um, and it's not so much what's shown in the movie. Uh, the movie does end up and, and, and wants to warn people about future dangers and future threats of the bomb, uh, which, is, you know, which is admirable. And I'm not sure any a director besides Christopher Nolan with a long track record of uh, popularity would have or could have had uh, this film made. However, uh, the omissions are quite serious. You, you already mentioned one, which is really the lack, almost the total lack of uh, any mentions or exploration of the radiation uh, revolutionary new radiation effects of this weapon, uh, both in the Trinity test, which is one of the main focuses of the film, showing the Trinity test. It does not show the radioactive cloud that drifted away and the fallout that affected uh, people. And, uh, and and then, of course, as you as you mentioned, the decades of nuclear tests, uh, exposure to soldiers and workers and so forth. So that's one thing. Another thing is that it does not show uh, any images of people on the ground in Hiroshima and Nagasaki uh, there's nothing we see Oppenheimer watching a screen where uh, it sounds like the footage is being aired or screened. Um, we do not see any of those images. We just see him growing a little bit disturbed about it. Uh, they do not, in the same time, they do not mention that 85% uh, of, the, of the victims in Hiroshima and Nagasaki were civilians. Uh, they don't mention that at all. Uh, and another thing, they barely mention Nagasaki. Uh, it's kind of thrown in in passing in the la last part of the film. Uh, it, it's just kind of tossed in as if it was kind of forced into the script. Uh, and for my mind, one of the most important things is certainly it does not challenge in any way the uh, Hiroshima narrative or official narrative, as I call it, that has held sway since 1945. Uh, about the decision to use the bomb, we, you know, we can talk about that more. It's very important and the legacy for today. Uh, instead, I, I think when people say it's an anti-nuclear film, 
you know, there is the message of uh, dangers for today and control of the weapons and so forth, but it does not challenge the use of the bomb in 1945. I think you're supposed to take away from the haunted visage of Oppenheimer and the great actor Killian Murphy, uh, his sort of vague, conflicted, uh, confusing regrets that he seemed to issue uh, during the movie and during his life. Uh, but in fact, uh, you know, as I've shown at my my blog and in my books, uh, Oppenheimer, in fact, defended the use of the bomb uh, against Japan to the end of his life, right up to 1965, 1966. Uh, so the film is a little misleading in that, but in fact, uh, it's true and it's quite accurate that Oppenheimer uh, really d did not reject it, and the film certainly does not challenge the decision to use the bomb. It's more moving forward from 1945. So when you talk about Hiroshima and Nagasaki, in fact, the footage that came out, that these scientists were shown at Los Alamos afterwards, the horror of the skin melted, there's one reference to it, uh, you know, an image um, of it. An image, yeah. But the actual film was classified for years. Is that right, Greg? Yeah, well— yeah, I've written a whole book called Atomic Cover-Up about it, and I directed a film uh, two years ago that got quite a bit of attention, including on this show, called Atomic uh, Cover-Up, which uh, looked at the post-Hiroshima uh, you know, post Nagasaki complete suppression of both uh, Japanese footage and the U.S. color footage that was, was uh, uh, seized and suppressed for many decades. So, of course, we don't see that in the film. I wouldn't necessarily expect that, but... You know, the decision to use the bomb in, in the film is handled, I mean, there is an accurate scene which shows uh, at the end of May of 1945, uh, the interim committee, which was Truman's uh, leading advisory committee on this, uh, had a meeting uh, where the subject sort of briefly came up how to use the bomb and, and should they use it. Uh, Oppenheimer, as he did in real life, uh, shot this down and said this was, you know, couldn't work or wouldn't work. It was the wrong idea to do a demonstration shot. Um, you know, the bomb had to be used. And then a uh, one of the other members of the committee then gives a ringing um, explanation, which became the Hiroshima narrative that still uh, carries the day today, you might say, with the media uh, <clears throat> and some historians, which is that, you know, only the use of the bomb, only the use of two bombs, really, would prevent uh, a bloody invasion of Japan, uh, hundreds of thousands of U.S. casualties and so forth. Um, and this is not really challenged in the, in the film, and uh, not by Oppenheimer, not, not really in the film narrative. It then goes to the future, and Hiroshima and Nagasaki are kind of left alone. And, you know, the danger of this and the legacy and the, the reason I've written so much on this for the past 40 years, really, is that the lessons for today is that, uh, yes, uh, everyone says we should never use nuclear weapons again. We, It's terrible. They must not be used. But on the other hand, we make these two exceptions uh, from 1945 uh, for, of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, for people— And we have a— and we have a yeah, go on. Uh, for people to understand, Greg, I mean, these scientists that came together at Los Alamos, the secret community that was built for them to build the atomic bomb, were motivated by taking on Nazi Germany. But then 
Nazi Germany surrenders, right, um, uh, or is beaten, is defeated. So if you can explain further, because this is something you're so steeped in, um, what it meant then to decide to use this bomb on Japan and also where the Soviet Union came into this, where Russia came into this. Right. Uh, right. Yeah, of course, the, the motivation for making the bomb was largely um, Hitler and uh, Nazi Germany. Of course, many of the top physicists were refugee Jewish uh, scientists, physicists from Germany. And it's really the main reason we beat Hitler to the bomb. Um, Germany surrendered. And uh, we were still fighting Japan, of course, very, very bloody battles and bombing their cities uh, that spring into the summer. Uh, uh, so, the, of course, the, then the target became Japan and, and the focus. And there, there were uh, scientists such as Leo Szilard who did circulate a petition that uh, asked people to uh, ask other scientists to, to, to uh, sign this petition that would go to Truman that would ask them to not use the bomb or delay, at least delay using the bomb. Oppenheimer was one of those people who squelched that petition. Uh, incidentally, uh, but um, basically the decision was made that uh, we, we, even though an invasion of Japan was not scheduled till uh, November and December, that we had to use this bomb or we wanted to use this bomb as soon as possible. And so uh, we had the Trinity test and then we had the dropping of the bomb in early August. Uh, you mentioned the Soviet uh, aspect of it, and uh, it's very important because we at our urgings, insistence, uh, Stalin agreed to enter the war in uh, by mid-August, uh, and yet we went ahead and dropped the bomb before the Soviets entered the war. Some people uh, say that the Soviet entry, along with a couple other uh, negotiating things, could have ended the war pretty much in the same time frame prime that it ended. Uh, Truman himself, uh, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, wrote in his diary, Finney Japs, when the Soviets would enter the war, um, General Eisenhower later said that it was totally unnecessary to use the bomb, that Japan was going to surrender very soon. And, you know, you have to step back a bit, uh, which the film doesn't do the best job of, of showing, okay, you deliberately targeted and exploded these bombs over the center of two cities. That was the aim. Uh, Oppenheimer was in on that. Everyone knew in the targeting committee that the aim was to uh, really to kill as many people and cause as much destruction as possible, which they executed. It wasn't. This was not a surprise. Uh, so you really have to go back and say, was it worth, uh, especially to the people, of course, who died, and the lessons for today, where we still have a first strike policy today that we can use nuclear weapons in response to a crisis or conventional attack. And the lesson that we have from Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which is still endorsed by the media every year and uh, many historians, is you can make exceptions and decide to use these weapons because we not only use them against two cities, but we continue, or many people continue to defend that today.
Uh, finally, we're going to do a post-show, uh, part two of this conversation. But I wanted to read a tweet to give people a sense of what we're going to talk about, uh, from the author and journalist Alyssa Lynn Valdez, who wrote this quote from The New York Times review of Oppenheimer film. He served as director of a clandestine weapons lab built in a near-desolate stretch of Los Alamos in New Mexico. She notes, it was inhabited by Hispanos. They were given less than 24 hours to leave, their farms bulldozed. We have— 15 seconds to give us a sense of what we'll talk about in part two. Well, there was uh, there were a lot of secrecy aspects to Los Alamos. Uh, that I mean, that's a lot to go into into there. But uh, the legacy of Los, Los Alamos was uh, a lot of these radiation uh, effects and secrecy, the secrecy regime that really uh, held sway in the U.S. for decades after, really right to this day. Well, Greg Mitchell, we want to thank you for being with us. We're going to link to your new piece for the Los Angeles Times. Oppenheimer's here. Is Hollywood still afraid of the truth about the atomic bomb? And we'll do part two at democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us.